Hello and welcome back to the Space Salvi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew Pettiprin, joined as always by Bobby Mixa. Bobby, how are you? I'm good, Andrew. I'm uh, I'm up in Northeast Poland right now, and uh, we got a little mixed up on the times, right? Because uh, I'm they just changed time in Poland. I'm not sure for the whole of Europe, but you guys are still uh, an hour uh, an hour uh, ahead of us. So I can never keep up with the time stuff, but <laughs> but here we are anyway. And uh, whatever time it is, wherever you are, we're delighted that you're here listening with us, and we're especially delighted because. Bobby and I are joined by our friend Larry Chap today. Um, Larry, uh, Larry, and uh, Larry and Bobby and I are are <clears throat> friends, and uh, we've collaborated a little bit together here and there. And uh, Bobby and I both share a kind of mutual admiration for Larry's incisive commentary on the church and the culture. And so we're excited to jump into that a little bit today with him uh, in this new uh, venture that we're embarking on the Space Salvi Institute. Larry, I'd like to start with, um, we're not really a current events podcast, but we want to we wanna address the fact that you've just come back from Rome and you've written about the Synod on Synodality. I love the piece that you published recently in Catholic World Report talking about the wideness, uh, kind of the theological wideness, which leads to theological shallowness, uh, which yeah. is definitely something that, I, that I'm that i concerned about. So let's start there. What was Rome like, and uh, what are your initial impressions kind of as a theologian? Well, Rome was, uh, Rome, is, so not, Rome is my favorite city in the world, so it wasn't much of a burden for me to have to go there to uh, report on the city. That being said, though, it was exhausting. Uh, meeting with a lot of different people, synod participants, other journalists, that kind of thing, just to get the sort of pulse. That's why I went there, not to just look at it from a distance, but kind of get a pulse of, of what's going on on the ground there. And, and I think I, th I think that I did. And 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 my impressions overall, uh, while there, simply confirmed what my fears had been before I went there, which is that the synod is is largely. Um, an exercise in in uh, a progressive the Catholic progressive theology's attempt to once again alter church teaching by hook or by crook. Uh, that's sort of the nutshell of it. And so they have used a lot of language, very very typical of the past sixty years. If you're familiar at all with progressive Catholic theology, of things like you know inclusion, diversity, dialogue, listening. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, you know, inclusion and diversity weren't so big, but you know, dialogue and listening and not being rigid and open to the new things that the Holy Spirit is doing. I mean, the, these are bromides of the left, Catholic left, that have been around for a long time, and then they're simply code now as they were code then for we want to change the church's teaching especially in areas of sexuality and gender uh and 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 they'll they'll do whatever they need to do in order to accomplish that and they haven't gone away the pontificates of john paul and benedict uh, notwithstanding they're still there and the pontificate of francis seems to have re-empowered them put them in charge of the synod as a matter of fact. And so it's a false whiteness. That was the point to my piece. <clears throat> it's, it's the same kind of language. But, you know, for example, just to use one example, when they say, well, we need to be a listening church, listening to whom? Clearly, Pope Francis doesn't want to listen to the traditionalists, the people who love Latin mass, the people who want to hold on to and retrieve certain traditions of the church. He doesn't want to listen to them. 
why wasn't instead of giving, uh, for example, uh, a papal audience private with Sister Janine Gramic of the dissenting New Ways Ministry, why didn't he grant a private audience to the leaders of Courage, which is a very orthodox uh, Catholic outreach to homosexuals? Why wasn't one of their members made a voting member of the Synod? And and you hear a lot of talk at the Synod from people like Cardinal McElroy, Cardinal Supich, Cardinal Holerich about the need to listen to these LGBTQ voices, but it only seems to be one kind of LGBTQ voice. I just, I don't mean to say that to pick on the gays, so to speak. They're always accusing people like me of this, but to point out that it's a strange kind of whiteness. It's no whiteness at all. It's actually a, a strange narrowness. And so there's a kind of Orwellian doublespeak going on. And I hate to be so negative, but uh, I, I'm deeply cynical about the whole thing. Yeah, and it seems to me before, I know, Bobby, you want to jump in, but just last thing here before you do. Um, it seems to me too, Larry, that even if something like the Synod on Synodality turns out to be what uh, I noticed today that Sora Bamari published a piece calling it a big nothing burger, and maybe it is, maybe that's right, like ultimately church teaching isn't going to change, but it just seems to me a lot of this stuff is just kind of bad for morale. Um, it, you know, it seems to, you know, it seems to kind of, um, you know, uh, take things that are very difficult and purport to deal with them just by sort of putting on an event, you know, rather than like really rolling up our sleeves and realizing like we have a crisis in the West, we have a crisis at the, the center of the question of human anthropology. You know, these meetings and these dialogues are fine, but they're not ever going to solve these problems. Um, and the, the whole kind of wideness issue that then, as you say, kind of leads to this shallowness issue is precisely what we want to avoid. We need depth. We need we need focus, yeah. you know. Yeah, we do. I don't know if Bobby wants to say something before well, I chime in again. Yeah, but like in response, very often when you, you stress the need for depth and to really mine the theological riches of the church, the people respond and they say, yeah, no, 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 no. People are not interested in that stuff. We need the kind of listening sessions. I mean, I dealt with this uh, so often when I was teaching in a Catholic high school, when you would try to say to the fellow teachers teaching theology, like, no, let's mine the riches of the church and tell them, actually, I've seen it in the classroom. The students want this stuff. They've never yeah, seen yeah. something like an argument before, or they've never heard of you know, once you open up the first page of Augustine's Confessions, they, they you know, you, you can see the, the lights spark in their eyes. Um, but yeah. but very often I I said they said, no, 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 we need more activities. We need to hear their voice. But they 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 really like you said in your piece, uh, uh, Larry, you can't give what you don't have. They don't have that yet. OK, and so experience is important. But yet they need to have they need to actually see like the form in order for yeah. the, the experience to be illuminated. So I don't know. I yeah. just I, I just find. Yeah. Great pieces, Larry. But well, I just find this really like, you know, concerning. And the thing. Is, yeah, it is very concerning because you mentioned the fact that they emphasize experience. So we need to listen to people's experiences. But even there, that's disingenuous. It, it's it's a, it's a load of risible nonsense because uh Whose experiences are they listening to? That they privilege certain experiences over others, which shows that they have an ideological agenda already in play. Like I said, they don't want to listen to the experiences of Catholics like the three of us. 
I don't feel represented by that synod. I don't believe that the most of the rep- people that were at that synod represented my voice at all. And I don't feel like I was listened to. And, and I think millions and millions of Catholics feel the same way. So it was a very tendentious and selective kind of listening. We're going to hear what we want to hear. And we're going to keep listening and hearing what we want to hear until we hear what we want to hear. And the, and, and, and the reason why, the, yeah, I think this synod was a big nothing burger, but I think they intended it to be a big nothing burger. As Cardinal Supic said on the way home, uh, oh, the, the final synthesis document. Yeah, it didn't have anything in it that a lot of people were expecting, but it, it's, the, the document's not important. What was important was the event itself. You know, and that is very reminiscent of how progressives co-opted Vatican II after the council, where they would say, well, for don't quote documents to me. Don't quote Lumen Gentium to me. Don't quote, quote Sacrosanctum Concilium to me, because the documents are unimportant. What's important is the event of the council, which then creates the spirit of Vatican II as a dynamic. That's at the essence of the so-called Bologna school of, of the interpretation of Vatican II as a rupture with the past. Mm-hmm. And the Bologna school led by Cardinal Marini would say, look, look, it doesn't matter what the council said. What matters was the dynamic it established, the processes of change it established. And then we ran with that. And that's my fear now between Synod number one and number two next year. I talked to some Synod members, and I won't mention their names, who said, pay very careful attention to what is going to happen in the next 11 months because this current synod was never intended to reach any conclusions. It was intended to set up a process and establish a buzz, establish a kind of dynamism that the next 11 months are going to push, 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 push until we get to the next synod. So, um, well, it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be very interesting because who knows what it is that Pope Francis is ultimately up to here. As I said in my piece, I'm kind of done trying to figure out Pope Francis. I'll let other people do the math and connect the dots. All I care about are the people that are speaking clearly as to what it is that they think the Senate is about. And people like Cardinal Holerich, Cardinal McElroy, that's very clear. Oh, we want women priests. So we want LGBTQ normalization. That's what we want. So, you know, kudos to them for being at least honest about what it is that they want. I don't think they're going to get it, but that's what they want. Yeah, I wonder sometimes, Larry, when I heard that there was going to be a synod on synodality, I thought immediately that it sounded like some Kafkaesque, uh, you know, ruse. <laughs> I mean, what a what a strange collection of words just in the in the description of what the thing is. But um, but then, you know, you know, you get all these hot takes about about this and that. And, you know, I, I suppose there's one one school that would say maybe this is some kind of four dimensional chess on the part of even of Pope Francis himself that, you know, you sort of, as you say, it's just, you know, it's all it's about the event. And maybe you let some of these people talk and kind of get it out of the system, just kind of have a bit of a, you know, yeah. have a have a bit of a, a listen, you know, a listening session, put all these jargon words, slap them all on there and and just sort of see if we can skate through you know, this, uh, this minefield or, or whatever, you know, kind of crawl our way through this minefield of, 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 um, you know, all the stuff that yeah. we're facing now in, in the world. But, you know, maybe I, it's entirely likely I'm just not faithful enough or smart enough to, to trust, you know, to trust processes or something like that. But it just seems to me there, we have so many bigger fish to fry in terms of not, not only the church, but how to talk to the culture too. Oh, a, a bigger fish to fry. How about the sex abuse crisis? Right. How about exactly. how about Father Rupnik? How about the Vatican continuing to slow pitch anything to do with Father Rupnik and Father Rupnik being simply the latest example 
of the current Vatican's soft peddling of the sexual abuse or the covering up of sexual abuse by people like Bishop Zanchetta and others. Or the Rupnik affair, as Chris Altieri has been writing about endlessly, uh, is, is infuriating because it's the tip of a very large iceberg. I mean, it's the culmination of a series of missteps by this papacy on the issue of sexual abuse. And, and uh, I mean, you guys can chime in on this. And like I said, like you said, this is not necessarily a podcast about current events, but is there a graver issue facing the church today, a more demoralizing issue, a festering issue that still hasn't been dealt with in the sex abuse crisis? Why didn't we get a synod on that? And what about the completely ongoing, unresolvable, irresolvable tensions in the liturgical life of the church? Uh, the, the ongoing and persistent desire for, by millions of Catholic, Catholics for a more traditional form of the liturgy, which just gets summarily ignored. And it's, it's a festering wound in the church. It's an ongoing wound in the church that has never been resolved. Why not have a synod on the liturgy? Perhesia, where all voices are heard, including the, sort of the so-called traditionalists and the Latin mass lovers. No, we get a meeting on meetings, which is absurd. And, it's, and it's even Pope Francis, like a couple months ago, admitted in an interview, I don't remember with whom, it was widely reported, though, where he says, I understand that for the average Catholic, the Synod is uninteresting because it's so bureaucratic and navel staring by the church, but it's still important. Uh, no, it isn't. Uh, and it's never been <laughs> right. important. It's, it's never been important. And that's my people say, why do you hate this? I don't hate the Synod. I just think it's a complete irrelevance and a complete distraction, and a complete waste of our time and money and energies as a church when there are so, so many other issues, which is precisely why I think it's never been about restructuring the governance of the church or about making the church more synodal in an Eastern style. The Eastern bishops are the first ones to say, what you're talking about has nothing to do with Eastern style synodality. It's not synodality at all. So they're throwing that word, synod yeah, it's like Princess Bride. You keep on using that word. I don't think you know what that means. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think they know what synodality even is. It's just a buzzword. It's code for we are going to establish a process of listening to lay people that we are then going to curate and guide and facilitate in a very certain direction, then declare that this is the Holy Spirit speaking through the census fidelium, and then use that as a justification for changing basic doctrines of the church. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying that's what they really mean by synodality. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to engineer fake census fidelium. That's what they're trying to do and call it synodality. You know, I told my wife, uh, she's like, oh, what are you, you going to talk about with, uh, about with Larry chat? And I said, uh, synodality that, you know, the synod, the synod Magdalena. And she's, she's like, maybe, maybe you could find something a little more interesting, not, not so boring. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then I think we also asked my, my in-laws about that and same, same thing. It just really, um, yeah, you know, in some sense, it is boring. I keep saying on my blog posts and stuff, geez, I'm sick of doing this stuff on synodality. And yet, and, and I get a lot of emails from people saying, you've got your blog's gone off the rails. You used to write about theology and theological issues. And now all you're doing is, you know, church chat uh, all, all the time. And, and but what I, what I tell people, no, absolutely. My commentary on the synod is absolutely a central aspect of my blog. If you go back to why I started Gaudium at Spes 22, it was to promote and defend the Resourcement Communio theology that animated the council and animated the papacies of John Paul and Benedict, the greatest theological movement since the medieval era in my point of view, and it needs to be preserved, promoted, and retrieved. 
I see the Synod as an attempt to dismantle that legacy. I yeah. see the progressives who are in the Synod di directly trying to dismantle, especially the legacy, the, the theological legacy of John Paul II. And therefore, it's of central concern to me, and it should be of central concern to every Catholic, that we not allow that to happen. Not this time. Not again. We're not going to do another spirit of Vatican II. We're not going to. And this time around, there are so many more media voices out there. It's no longer possible to simply to control the narrative by controlling five or six media choke points. That's why things like this and, and other venues are so, so important that we get the message out. Not again. They're not going to get away with this again. But Larry, really quickly, why 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 is it that the, the racehorse mon school um, just and so, so, so attacked? I mean, and just also, though, like as like a player, it just seems that this kind of more liberal progressive uh, wing of, of theology is 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 basically it's it's it dominated most of the institutions i mean you went to to fordham yeah. i went yeah. to st louis university um bishop Barron used to talk about having to read rottinger you know in you know clandestinely in, yeah and so i i, I yeah I, I, I literally i was like a little kid in seminary with under my blanket with a flashlight reading balthazar <laughs> yeah so yeah, so yeah but like anybody who's handed like um you know, I, I'm not talking about like the really good stuff maybe there, but like comparing that to just the average communio or resource moan thinker, it just doesn't compare. Why Why did it have to though, like the only place I remember that was really doing like resource, not resource moan, but also representing communio was the, was where communio, the journal was housed. It wasn't really, yeah, yeah, had Washington. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, why, why well, is I think that? Well, from, from the from the progressive Catholic point of view, it's easy. Uh, progressive theology is wide and shallow. It's it doesn't really care about theology as such at all. Uh, for the most part, progressive Catholic theology was a conclusion in search of an argument, uh, and the conclusion was that the wide boulevard of modern secular values are what's normative, and we need to bring the church into line with the normativity of those secular values. And whatever theology aids us in that project is good, and we're going to label as good. And any theology that impedes that is, by definition, reactionary, rigid, pharisaical, and backward. So it, 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 resourcement theology got eclipsed because it continued to speak as if theology mattered to these people, as if theology mattered to the mass media that the liberals uh, controlled. And, and so we kept spinning our theological stuff and while the liberals took control of everything and were speaking in the language of pop sociology and pop psychology. Uh, and you're right. Now they're back in control of things again. And the reason why communio theology and folks like Bishop Barron have taken it on the nose from the radical traditionalists is because if you look at before Pope Francis came along, there weren't that many rad trads. They were mostly with the SSPX people. And what you had were simply conservative JP2 Catholics or very conservative JP2 Catholics. And they were all kind of on board with the communio resource month thing. They, they had no big problem with Vatican II or anything, but they got red pilled by Pope Francis. And eventually, about five years into the Francis papacy, I think they all just said, we don't, you know, it's very easy. It's a very lazy, but you can understand it. They simply said, scorched earth. We don't want, if, if Pope Francis and his guild represent Vatican II and the post-Vatican II church, we want nothing to do with it. 
And insofar as resourcement communio theology is implicated in Vatican II, it gets caught up in, in that uh, rejection. Uh, sadly, you know, most of the traditionalists who reject communio don't really know what it is. They've never read communio. They know Balthazar was dare we hope and stuff. And that that's it. And so th th there's this kind of retreat that we need to go back to Gary Lagrange. We need to go back to the like it was before. Of course, that's silly. You can't do that, but but you can understand it. So I think, in a nutshell, that's the kind of dynamic of what's going on and why communio theology has really been uh, eclipsed and why there is a need for these kinds of conversations that we're having right now. I just had one this morning, too, with a Father John Neppel, who's the vice rector at St. John Vianney Seminary in Denver, and uh, he's just got a new book out. He's a resource month theologian. His new book out on Mary and the church. Uh and, and and I had a wonder, and he was apologizing for being a theology nerd and talking so many deep theological ideas. I said, no, 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 be the nerd. We don't have enough theology nerds out there right now, because contrary to what people say, like the progressives, people do want theology. They want good theology. They really do. You should get that on the shirt. Uh, be the nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I don't need a shirt to advertise that I'm a nerd. <laughs> Larry, um, I, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, I'm going to kind of ramp up to, to my next question to you by, by saying this, you know, I'm a, a, I'm a convert to Catholicism, I guess, you know, in quotes, a convert, I'm, I came into full communion with the Catholic Church from Protestantism, I was an Anglican minister for about 10 years. And, you know, I like to say to people, I'll tell you about synodality if you'd really like to hear about it, you know, from my Anglican background, where I mean, I literally was in rooms where people were voting on, you know, essentials of doctrine. Um, but it's almost just kind of what's the point? I mean, I, I can talk about that sort of thing and, and people may listen or, or may not. But, you know, I, I, I reflect on the things that were so compelling to me about coming into the church. It was definitely... Uh, it was definitely frustration with things like that that drove me out, but far greater was the vision of the fullness of reality that the church offered and that I think yeah. is so palpable in the communio stuff, in, in the, the Vatican II documents, in the, the work and the ministry of, of Pope Benedict, of Ratzinger Benedict, and JP II, of course, as well. And, you know, for these years that we have had Pope Francis as Pope, I mean, I came into the church during during Pope Francis's pontificate. And I have tried, I certainly haven't gone full black pill rad trad. And um, I'm certainly never going back to any kind of, you know, liberal, you know, progressive kind of um, spirituality. But, um, but I admit, you know, I think there are people who are in a boat like the one I'm in, and, and a lot of cradle Catholics too, who they really do want to just be faithful Catholics. Um, but keep running into these roadblocks and these and these walls. Yeah. And so, you know, our project here at the Space Albi Institute, obviously we take our, our name from uh, Pope Benedict's great, um, great eschatological um, encyclical. Um, but, you know, it's one of the important things for us is that the, the end, the, the eschaton, is what ought to inform our lived experience now. And so I guess this is all a big roundabout way of saying maybe to throw it back to you to, to, to start thinking in terms of hope. Like, you know, I, I'm pretty oh, yeah. confident that we're going to get through, that we're going to get through this. Um, I, and I try on my best days to just chalk up a lot of this nonsense to just kind of the last gasp of, 
you know, a last gasp of this kind of tired old thing, or just a kind of naivete, maybe on, on the part of, of some of the people closest to Pope Francis or something, I don't know, benefit of the doubt kind of thing. But, um, but where, you know, what, what's your kind of, what's your, what's, what kind of still makes you excited to, to be a Catholic, I guess, is one way to throw it back to you to ask you. Uh, because man, it's a wild ride for starters. Yeah. And, and, and it, what keeps me Catholic, and this is going to seem trite is that it's true. Uh, and, 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 you know, that, that, that still excites me, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. And everything I was, I was thinking, uh, you know, you're a former Anglican. I, I, you know, I go to the Anglican ordinariate uh, parish, even though I'm a cradle Catholic and largely because it feeds me liturgically and spiritually. And so, so I sought it out. Um, but I, I really think that it's, that it's true that if the church is simply going to, I have, I'm very hopeful. This, okay. I'm extremely hopeful about the future of the church. Maybe not in my lifetime, but down the road. And here's why. The fact is, if the church is going to emulate secular culture, which is what progressives want to do and just drift along. What is secular? Secular culture today is religious indifferentism and religious relativism. Uh, and, and so if you're going to emulate that, you're, you're kind of committing institutional suicide. And you see that wherever Protestant, liberal Protestant churches have emulated the culture, they commit institutional suicide because you've adopted religious relativism and indifferentism in adopting the culture. Therefore, the only form of Catholicism that's going to survive just as you see in the Protestant churches, are, are forms of ecle uh, ecclesial existence that offer people a real alternative to the culture. Uh, and there are, there are going to be various levels of sanity and insanity to those alternatives. Uh, but we have to build, a, and this is Bishop Barron's thing, right? We have to build attractive alternatives to the dominant culture, and they have to be attractive. They can't just be freakish right-wing let's go build a Catholic compound kind of thing. It has to be a real alternative. How you do that is going to be left up to the, to the genius of sanctity, the genius of saints and, and doing that. But I'm very hopeful. That, so in some ways, we have this really unique opportunity that's confronting us. Because in a lot of ways, what all of this that we're seeing today represents is, in my view, the, the death rattle of, of a certain kind still clinging of a certain kind of Constantinian form of the church, this sort of accommodation between the church and the dominating culture, uh, which was fine as long as the church dominated the culture. But then long after the church didn't dominate the culture, it still wanted to play nice and make nice with this dominant culture. And it hasn't worked. It really hasn't worked. And what we're seeing is the kind of death rattle of that kind of status quo Western style, bourgeois, suburban Catholicism, whatever you want to call it, what Barron calls beige Catholicism. It's the death rattles of that. I think you're right about that. What, and therefore, there's, there's going to be a painful, as Ratzinger pointed out in 68, right? There's going to be a painful shrinking of the church. We're going to lose members. We're going to hemorrhage people. And there's just practically no way to stop that. The, the, the barn doors are already open. The horses have left. So we have to simply be about the business of knowing who we are, doubling down on knowing who we are, building communities of sanctity and love and care and compassion and faith and truth and beauty and goodness and all those things, and just stick with it. And, and, let, and let then the, the real movement of the Holy Spirit, not people sitting around round tables in the Paul VI Hall, the real movement of the Holy Spirit suddenly raise up for us new St. Benedict's, new St. Francis's, you know, new Thomas Aquinas's to show us via their sanctity 
how we're going to negotiate what it means to be a Catholic in the world today. There's really, in many ways, no way to know in advance what that's going to look like. We can have, you know, certain parameters. The church is always going to be have the same basic structures, but you know, what form it takes, culturally speaking, it's going to. This is what jazzes me up. This is why I started a Catholic worker farm. There's some, there's some real mojo, baby, going on out there in the church. It's not all doom and gloom. It's not. There's some really great, exciting people doing exciting things in the church, and that gives me hope. Yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, all the people, even at the the John Paul II Institute in D.C., when you when you meet all those people, like you see, it's like a creative, yeah, minority, and the people are so compelled by the faith, not only because it's true, but I mean, it just it 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 literally is just a such a source of beauty that it inspires them to to yeah. really yeah counteract the kind of boredom that you find everywhere in society. You know, I I love that you stress. Um, um, was it the Bernarnos? Uh, is it Bernarnos yeah. from from the Diary of a Diary Country of a Country Priest? Priest. Yeah, just George looking Bernanos. out at a at a bored church. Um, it's the opening page of the book. Yeah, my parish um, is bored, bored stiff like all the rest, and there's not a damn thing we can do about it. And that's how Bernanos opens the novel, and this is 1936. Yeah. But but you mentioned too, like there's not a damn thing we can do about it. I remember whenever like Dr. Uh, Schindler, uh, deceased, you know, Dr. Schindler, yeah, David, David, L. David L. Schindler, L. Schindler yeah. a lot of the students would would always, you know, complain to him. Well, what do you want us to do? And like, what should we do to change things? And he said, he he simply said, take a vow, just take a vow. And uh, I thought that was like the best response you could. Could, that is a great you, response. What yeah. did he mean by that? Did he elaborate? I'd like to know. Well, actually, I, I heard uh, his son retell that story once. And he, he meant he meant like commit yourself like, yeah, D.C. Um, in this, it's kind of like Balthazar's Christian States of Life book um, yeah, a little yeah. bit where it's just like, you know, I, uh, commit yourself in, in a way to obedience, chastity, and uh, poverty, uh, whether that's in, in marriage or in the consecrated life, um, and that radical way of life of when you bind yourself completely to another, absolutely, um, is 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 actually enough enough. Because my concern is like often in these discussions we can talk about you know great theology and you know that will do enough to like move move people. Um, yeah. which it which it we need that but at the same time um you need like it, people who have like this living presence of the lord in them by their way of life they're so yeah. in the spirit that you great yeah great theology is necessary but it's not sufficient yeah and what you're describing is what's not sufficient about it you've yeah. got to go on into the and i write about this all the time into the realm of the universal cult of holiness into sanctity yeah. And, and uh, the reason why I was so curious what Schindler meant by that is that there is a line in Balthazar, I can't remember where, now I'd have to look it up, where Balthazar says, love always takes the form of a vow. And, yeah. and so any culture in any society, in any church that's, that runs around saying, you know, that love is the opposite, all right, is it, love means the dissolving of the ties that bind in order for us to be truly free, in order to pursue our libidinous desires, that that is the opposite. And so, yeah. I think that's another way is just of saying, you know, vowed to something is another way of saying is be an alternative, yeah. be an alternative to that, to the silliness and superficiality. You know, we, we tend to, I think, underplay how 
unattractive modernity is to most people, how bored they are, how dead inside they feel. Yeah. Uh, and, and so if we can represent the faith to them, but it's got to be, the faith has got to be represented in a way that's fresh and new somehow, some way, because there is this, there is this sense in the air among many people that they don't even want to consider the church because, oh, been there, done that, tried that. They had their day in the sun and they blew it. And that's just so, you know, centuries ago, you know, it's like when a Jehovah witness comes to our door and we thank you. And we shut the door. Cause you know, I don't yeah. want their stupid comic book. Cause I know in advance that their religion is dumb. And, and I'm not saying Catholicism is dumb, but that's the, we need to understand that that's the way so many of our contemporaries view Catholicism, the same way we look at a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon when they come to the door. Yeah. All right. And, and so we have to find a way to stop passing out the comic book. We, we, got, we got to figure out a way to sort of sort of shock therapy or something where we've got to really shake the dust off of this institution and, and do something truly exciting, unique, novel, energizing. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me, Larry, that it's not only that we project this, uh, we project onto others the, the idea that our faith is just kind of the option that we have chosen among many, yeah. but, but we, we think of that for ourselves. You know, we, we think of the church as just kind of, you know, in our opinion, man, like the biggest and best <laughs> denomination, and maybe you ought to be a part of it or whatever. But, yeah. you know, rather than thinking of it as, you know, and this is to come back to kind of the communio thing and the and Vatican II. I mean, to me, like when I read the catechism of the Catholic Church, when I was pouring through that, contemplating coming into the church, I mean, it was clear to me that I wasn't just like reading a rule book. I wasn't just reading sort of the, the book, yeah. you know, the, that prescribes everything that I have to sign up to, but rather it's the book that describes reality. And and therefore, that's the compelling vision that that I want. And you know, this relates to something that I know you've, to, in my mind anyway, to something that I know you've written a lot about, which is the kind of just de facto atheism or idolatry that we all yeah, walk around with. Yeah. And it seems yeah. to me that, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, how to reinvigorate the institution or how to speak to the culture, that that's really the big obstacle that we need to, that we need to face um, in each one of us. Uh, so I don't know if you have any, if you've thought about more about that lately or have any fresh ideas. Uh, oh, uh, you know, I have. I think it, I believe it was Peggy, Charles Peggy, who said that uh, modern Christianity is characterized by uh, believers who don't believe anymore. <laughs> and that's very similar to what Ratzinger said in 1958 in his famous bombshell article in Hochschild, you know, the, the, the new heathenism or the new paganism in the church, uh, where he flat out said, you know, what the church is today is a bunch of people who think they're Christians and they're not, they're really pagans. Uh, and I've sort of riffed on that and say, you know, in essence, what we have in the church are, are a group of de facto atheists. And, and I would include the many in the hierarchy mm -hmm. and, and the clerical ranks in that. And I, I say that in some ways, non-judgmentally, because I also like to say that I'm a leper preaching to other lepers. We're all infected with the bacillus of modernity, whether we like it or not. There's no way you can completely rise above the plausibility structures of your culture. And so there, there is this sort of nihilistic, atheistic impulse that our culture has planted within all of us that requires real effort and real work and real spiritual energy to overcome. Most Catholics have developed a sort of 
attenuated, weakened version of Pascal's wager that governs their spiritual life, where they have this de facto atheism within it, but they decide to do a sort of whistling past the graveyard spirituality of, well, let's hedge my bets. And after all, church is good for the kids. So they need some kind of morality or something. Uh, but it, it's not really a vibrant, deep faith, and it gives way at the first provocation. Uh, therefore, you know, Rahner was correct. The Christian of the future is going to be a mystic or they won't be a Christian at all. Uh, and, and, you know, Balthazar had similar things to say. Ratzinger's, you know, you, you see a lot of people saying this same thing, that, uh, that you're going to see a pruning away of those de facto atheists in the church. And what you're going to be left with are, are, are people, who, I, I'm trying to avoid the term intentional Catholics because I don't like it, but that's what I mean. Yeah. I know you want to jump in, Bobby. I'll just say this real quick. You know, everything you're saying there, Larry, is a reminder to me of how, yes, on the one hand, we absolutely want to, to try to create these structures in our own lives that can kind of serve this formative function um, mm -hmm. in the absence of a culture that could do that for us. But something that Bobby and I are both pretty interested in and that our project is, is focusing on a little bit is also trying to... Um, highlight in the our cultural heritage and maybe even in certain aspects of like certain marks that remain in kind of the the, the remnant of, of western christendom that we can sort of draw out again and kind of not that we're trying to be antiquarians or you know we're not trying to kind of live in the past or anything like that but what we are trying to say is um it is good for the culture to uh to have these formative elements in it and we want to kind of we want to build those up again to some degree and not only, I mean, we want to do this in tandem with the idea that yeah. we have to like yeah. build these kind of parallel structures, I suppose. Yeah. And that's why I'm not a huge fan of Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, uh, rightly or wrongly, I think wrongly mostly, but it's been interpreted as a kind of let's flee into the Catholic compound kind of thing. Uh, and I think there are elements in that book that lend itself to that. Uh, be that, I, I prefer the, the statement by the Villanova uh, professor, Eugene McCarraher, whose wonderful book, The Enchantments of Mammon, towards the end, he says, we don't need a Benedict option, we need a Francis option. And he didn't mean Pope Francis, he, mean, he meant St. Francis, uh, because St. Francis uh, didn't just retreat you know, into a monastery. St. Francis, I mean, the whole mendicant thing was the fusion of monastic with going out into the world. And that's what McCarraher meant. And, and then Dorothy Day understood that. And we're sort of committed to that. Yeah, this is not a flee to the hills thing. It, it's we build intentional communities in order to engage the world. Uh, but in order to engage the world, you first have to know who you are and you have to have a strong base out of which uh, to operate. But it can never be insular and it can never become self-referential. That's not the essence of the gospel. Right. Can you can you imagine if the first apostles had simply said, well, we're just going to go into Judea and start a little Jesus compound <laughs> to hell with her. And we're, we're going to await the end of the world to hell with her. No, no, they went out into the world. There is a missionary mm -hmm. mandate, not that mission that mon monks don't have a missionary. I mean, look, Teresa Blazou, patron saint of, of you know, of missionaries. Um, but you get my point. I mean, there's yeah. got to be there's got to be an engagement with the world. Well, we see this. Go ahead. 
No, no, no. I'm just saying, like, you, you mentioned Francis, and I'm thinking of the Franciscans in Krakow. The Franciscan church is, like, pretty much almost <clears throat> in the very – you have the Franciscans and the Dominicans in, like, the very center of, of, of the city. And there's kind of, like, this almost in the sense that it's, like, the the – almost the base of the city around which almost almost everything is kind of being shaped. But what Andrew and I are trying to do is to see, well, even in also in Europe, you still have more or less, maybe it's not like a fully lived reality, but the if things even like the cities, um, you, you're still in, in, in the structure of that world. And so for people like, like Andrew and me, like we're Americans, right? We come and we see this. Uh, for the first time. And we want to yeah. say, hey, look at what you have. And in some ways, perhaps you're maybe kind of living this out like unknowingly more than maybe even the Catholics in other cultures who are more intentional with their faith than you are. Yeah. But drawing from that is kind of like you want to say like these plausibility structures, but yet there's also these other structures that like Matthew Crawford says in his book, um, uh, the world outside your head act kind of like a jig in which they they in a way make you think like okay well if pilgrimage these pilgrimage routes are all around uh my country yet nobody's walking there now yet it's there it's still there and there might be one yeah. person who's taking that up um and that's that's <coughs> that's enough of a witness um so so we're hoping to take is. some of that and, and help people, you know, um, you know, also bring some of that within the the really like concrete, concrete Absolutely. world of America. Because I'm, I'm I'm a resolute opponent of the idea that the culture is lost to hell with it. Let's mm -hmm. just uh, you know cut our losses, retreat to our compounds, like I said, and 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 I do think there's an element of that kind of thinking in the Benedict Option. And especially among people that it's it's like, look, we get we need to engage the culture, but essentially it's a lost cause. It's a waste of time. Let's just write it off. No, we can't write it off. And the fact is, the gospel is true and human nature hasn't changed. And, and it, it, there are still deep, deep, deep reservoirs of spiritual thirst in the culture that's out there and deep reservoirs of goodness, beauty and so on in that culture. I'm even something, for example, you know, I'm, I'm writing, I'm giving a speech at the University of Scranton on Thursday, and I'm not quite done with it yet, but the part I'm working on right now is, is precisely on this topic. And if you look, for example, even at like critical theory, critical race theory, and so on, we can, we can lament it and we say, what a crock of pagan nonsense and, blah, 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 and get all Republican and right wing about it. It's a horrible thing. This is in our schools. But the fact is, Critical race theorists are essentially calling the bourgeois enlightenment project a pile of nonsense. And they're looking at it, you know, they reach wrong conclusions. Yes, class warfare, all that kind of stuff. But they're not wrong to point out that that the, the enlightenment in the name of freeing ourselves from the oppression of religion has created one of the most oppressive cultures in the history of the world. And as it, it created massive forms of oppression of various groups over the past four hundred years, sponsored some of the greatest genocidal wars, spawned the, the race-based uh, slave trade, and so on. And, and so you can look at, in other words, my point is you can look at critical race theory and you can say, well, that's a horrible thing and I'm not going to talk about it. Or you can sit down and you can say, you guys have a point, but here's where you go off the rails, I think. 
And here's where Christ provides us with, which, with a better, and his cross provides us with a better understanding of the agonistic elements and suffering in human history, because that's essentially what critical theory is pointing to, is that history has been largely agonistic, a, a tale of oppression and suffering, what Girard would call a tale of, of scapegoating and, and mimetic desire. And I can point to that and say, you are right about all of that. But here's where Christ gets it better. And, and of course, words aren't always going to do it, but we can build structures of discourse and engagement with, with people in our culture uh, on that side of things, even when we resolutely disagree on more topical sort of hot button issues. So, all, no, all is not lost. People are people. And there's a deep goodness in almost everybody, you know, unless you're some sort of serial murdering pathological, you know, mentally ill person. <laughs> and we don't expect any such people are listening to the podcast uh, right now. Bobby, any any final words, any final questions well, for Larry before we sign off for the day? Well, I just want to follow up Larry's comment on critical race theory. And also just I thought of um, uh, the dialectics of the Enlightenment, um, which um, Pope Benedict XVI in Space Salvi mentions Theodore Adorno, uh, one of the authors yes. of, of that book. And so I encourage everybody, um, you know, because there's a great commentary on the Enlightenment. Um, in space salvi so take a look at that it's 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 paragraph 22 20 All right. 20, 22 so. i'll go back and reread it myself because i remember it now and so that's great <laughs> well speaking of 22 if any of you are unfamiliar with larry chap's work you can check out his website gaudium at spes 22 named after the uh one of the constitutions from vatican ii uh and uh larry writes regularly for all kinds of places catholic world report he's got a great a great book out not too long ago from ignatius press and uh, Larry is just one of the one of the shining lights and a good friend. So, Larry, well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you. You guys are good for my ego. So that's good. <laughs> well, you. you're good. You're good for you're good for us and for for everyone listening. No <laughs> doubt. If you liked what you heard here today from the Space Alvey Institute podcast, please do give us a five star review. Share it with a friend of yours and check out our website, spacealveyinstitute.com. Sign up for our email so you never miss anything new. Until next time, God bless you. We live in hope.